So this this bank, its basic primary job is to issue dollars and to issue them in a way that that we have a stable currency. So that when the when the money supply gets tight, the Fed creates more dollars out of thin air and increases the money supply. And then when there's too much money out there, which creates inflation, the Fed like sucks in the money, like kind of draining a pool, brings money out, cools it down. Listeners, today I chat with Chris Leonard, who is an author and an investigative journalist, and he wrote this book called *The Lords of Easy Money*. And it's all about how the Fed printed a bunch of money <laughs> and kind of uh, hurt the um, hurt our financial system and hurt the U.S. economy. And you know, so we dive into this is a this is like a alpha leak episode from an investigative journalist where you're like, oh my god. I can't believe this is what's been happening with the Fed. So, you know, we first dive into the mechanisms of how it works, how the Fed prints money, how that connects to the central banks, why it's a kind of a plutocratic system. And then we kind of look at the history, you know, from the 1900 through through today about, you know, when the Fed was created and how, you know, how the Fed, how this is, has happened in the past where the Fed has printed too much money in the 60s and then had inflation in the 70s and had to reel it back. And, um, and how even then that was like, that was not, they printed too much money before quantitative easing, before zero interest rates. That was when interest rates were 5%, 10%, you know? And so um, so we kind of contextualize the current moment in history. And, and that allows us to see these different kinds of inflation, where not only is there price inflation, like, you know, the cost for your car, the cost for whatever, but there's also asset inflation, which is just the stock market go up, you know, um, orange, you know, orange coin, good energy. And that asset inflation is such a huge part of just like money printing. It goes into the um, the, the the vaults of these central bank or of, of the commercial banks, and then they, they're searching for yield, and then they just put it into these assets, and the assets go up. And so that's... Um, that's the reality we've been now living in. And this kind of third big piece is the age of easy money, you know, and when we have all this money printing um, and how it creates these massive bubbles and how we, you know, the way Chris talks about is 350, um, 350 years worth of printing in, in four years, you know, we've just, we went from, you know, 1 trillion to 3 trillion and then 3 trillion to 9 trillion all in a really fast period of time. And so it's, um, it's not a good situation. And so then we kind of look at the end where we say, okay, we've created all this inequality. We've created all this risk. We've created all this debt in the system. And so what should we do? What should the Fed do? Should they keep interest rates high so that it flushes out all the bad parts of the system? And I think, you know, that's probably right, but it's going to it's gonna be kind of a decade of, of difficulty there. Um, what should individuals do? Should you, what should you buy? You know, <laughs> um, you know, not financial advice. And then what should the, what does this say about, the kind of the state of capitalism and the state of reserve currencies, you know, the U.S. government and the U.S. empire versus, you know, China on the rise. So it's um it's a good deep dive on all those topics, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you like it, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite uh, app and, and feel free to leave a rating or whatever. Um, we really do appreciate it and uh, trying to bring you and help you understand at a foundational level what's happening with these important things like the state of the economy and how the Fed kind of impacts that. So with that, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Chris. Hello, Reese Pieces. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. I believe the best way to predict the future is to build it. And so I'm interviewing pioneers on the frontier to understand 
what the world will look like, and the secrets behind how they're building it. These are insights from the frontier. And today, I'm excited to chat with Chris Leonard. Chris is an investigative journalist who's written three books, the most recent of which is perfect for our Silicon Valley Bank moment, and it's called The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Chris, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, excited to dive in. It was it was funny before the show. I I checked with Chris on the intro, and I had accidentally put a T at the end of his name. So I was like, "Welcome to Christ." Christ is on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris was joking to chat about monetary policy. You know, it's like that's what Christ has risen from the dead to chat about. Yeah, let's hope if he comes back, there are bigger things to talk about than Silicon Valley Bank. But I'm here in the in the here and now to talk about that. Exactly, exactly. We yeah. don't have Christ, but we do have Chris, <laughs> which is good. You know, it was the second, it's kind of like uh, you, you're looking for Beyonce, but you only get, you know, a really good, you know. Totally. Um, so yeah, and so as, as Chris and I were also chatting about before the show, the goal is to kind of, you know, get in the mind of a smart listener who's really, who's seeing what's happening with um, the, 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 the macro economy and banks and Silicon Valley Bank is going, okay, SVB just, you know, kind of failed. And there's also all of this, you know, we had this money printing thing that was happening with quantitative easing. And now we're kind of, the interest rates are changing. And so to kind of like understand all of that and what it means for both people's day-to-day lives, but also for kind of like the macro global economic system. So with that, Chris, um, and, and as a note for the listeners, yeah, this Chris wrote the, this great book, The Lords of Easy Money, which is really, it's a good dive into kind of how the Fed operates and all of this stuff and what kind of the last couple decades have been like. Um, but before getting into that, Chris, I want to ask you, what made you want to write a book about monetary policy? Yeah, never thought I would be there, honestly. Um, so I'm an I'm a, I'm a business reporter, but and, and an author, and I feel like my uh, my main thing is I like to write about really really powerful institutions, describe how they work from the inside, describe how they use their power, how it affects all of us on the outside. I wrote a book about Coke Industries, a Coke Brothers company. Wrote a book about Tyson Foods, the biggest meat company, to talk about agriculture and rural America. Okay. I was honestly minding my own business reporting the book about the Koch brothers. And that book put me into contact with a lot of really brilliant financial trader type people. Like you wouldn't think this, but Koch has built a financial trading desk that rivals anything at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. So I was interviewing this guy who's really, really brilliant. And he, we, we talked about Coke for a few hours, but then he really wanted to talk about what he was seeing in asset markets. And this was like 2016. And this guy walked me through, he, he was like, he was like shell-shocked. He's like, you would not believe what's going on right now. And one of the headlines he gave me was the Federal Reserve has printed 350 years worth of money in about four and a half years. In other words, between 2008 and 2014, the Fed printed 3.5 times as much money as it printed in the first century of its existence. And then this guy started explaining to me how this money was created in the Wall Street banking system, how it was pushing the big banks to speculate more, um, just pushing all this cash out into the riskiest investments, corporate junk debt, tech stocks, all the rest of it. And I was like, dude, this guy's got to be crazy. You know, is this guy, is this guy exaggerating? Is this just one point of view? And that's what really got me on this. I started reading every book I could, every magazine article. I started interviewing people and sincerely, like I, I did not think there had even been a very good deep magazine article 
about these Fed policies, like quantitative easing in the in the 2010s. And so I really like truly got obsessed with it. And I just felt like this is one of the most important things that we've got to understand, like this policy, this institution. And, and that's how I got on it. Yeah, I love that. That's a great when you start to hear something like, okay, this person's either crazy or like correct. And then you're like, oh, let's like double click here. And you're like, oh my God, you kind of can kind of see the unraveling of this. Um, and so maybe, so that, and let me actually want to ask you one other question before we go into like the Fed piece. What about you as a person makes you like to kind of explore as, as a human, like explore these institutions and how they work and what's going on within these, all these acronyms, you know? Okay. I mean, like, first of all, I don't know. <laughs> I just know I love it. But I mean, okay. I mean, really quickly, like I've always loved writing. You know how everybody you talk to probably has their thing that like they react with and love. Okay. Writing was mine. Reading and writing books. I'm a book freak. I love bookstores. I love books. But then I discovered journalism in college and really fell in love with that. Like interviewing people, talking to people, exploring the world. And then really developed this deep, deep sense of like public concern or like being like a citizen in the broader world. Like I was kind of a moron as a kid. And then like in college, I'm like, you know, wow, there's this big, big world around me and it really matters what's going on. And then, you know, I won't, but, you know, like 2003 with the invasion of Iraq and like I was a business reporter in the collapse of Enron that's what pushed me into wanting to be an investigative reporter. And I really love the work of people like Bob Woodward or whatever, who could just burrow into an institution and tell you how it works, if that makes sense. And so that's what I do for a living. And like, it just totally makes me happy. Like I, I, I get obsessed like a pit bull just on like what's going on inside these places, you know? Yeah. I love that. That's a cool, it's a cool way to say, I think investigative reporting is of, the most because something just like news is just like hey here's a new thing that we're trying to get you to like click on or whatever but like something like investigative reporting is like no society is formed of all these complex entities and like we can tell you what's actually happening why would something you know i just had this woman jen Polka on the show who talks about um she's like a civic tech person who went into government and tried to understand what is systemically happening in government that makes it so that they're not outcome driven but instead are kind of process driven you know and so like trying to understand these things from the inside out what's actually happening here that drives these outcomes so that's that's cool to know so let's let's dive into the the fed piece so I guess just to give our, our listeners an overview, and I know for me, even you know two weeks ago, I didn't know very much about this. Could you kind of explain the mechanism of like, you have banks, you have the Fed, what is the Fed? Yeah. Um, and how does that make inflation, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm not, but like one of the things that bugs me so much about this is how the Fed is talked about most. Like most of the media coverage of the Fed is very much from the point of view of like a bond trader. Yes. Uh, or like how high is the interest rate going to be? Is it two and a half or 2.75? I mean, dude, you would think it was Watergate, like the level of intensity and energy that goes into like, is it going to be two or 2.75? And, and for most of us, who cares? But it really is like a fascinating institution. And I mean, if you rewind the clock back to like, let's just say like 1908 ballpark, okay? So during the presidential campaign, um, Williams Jennings Bryan gives this speech and he says, mankind shall not be crucified upon a cross of gold. Have you ever heard that saying? No. It, it's probably one of the most popular political phrases about monetary policy ever. 
And what I'm trying to get across there is back in 1908, like the politics of currency was a retail level political issue. The way we argue and shout about guns and abortion, like that's how they used to talk about currency and monetary policy. Cross of gold was money policy. And back then we didn't have a central bank in the United States. Like, you know, we're like a federalist country, very skeptical of centralized power And we didn't want to have a government-run central bank in the way, say, like England did, because we're really skeptical of that power. So this is interesting, by the way, like from a tech perspective, Silicon Valley perspective. In the late 1800s, there were literally thousands of currencies in the U.S., thousands. And banks could like issue their own currency. And I guess that to me, it's like the whole cryptocurrency, Bitcoin thing is like, hmm, we've kind of tried that to a degree. And the late 1800s were a disaster. We had these like really frequent bank panics. We had these long periods of deflation. You can't really run like a sophisticated capitalist economy without having some kind of central bank to manage the currency. Okay. So we created the Federal Reserve in 1913 so we could have a national currency. The thing you and I call the dollar is a Federal Reserve note. Okay. So this this bank, its basic primary job is to issue dollars and to issue them in a way that that we have a stable currency. So that when the when the money supply gets tight, the Fed creates more dollars out of thin air and increases the money supply. And then when there's too much money out there, which creates inflation, the Fed like sucks in the money, like kind of draining a pool, brings money out, cools it down. And that's the job of the Federal Reserve, in essence, at the most basic level. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, you have, and as you said, yeah, there was the era of wildcat banking and stuff, and it was just kind of Wild West energy, and then, um, you know, all these bank panics and stuff after that. And then it was like, okay, let's actually have a stable thing that can be a, a medium of exchange and a unit of account that actually works and and doesn't isn't going up and down in these crazy ways. And so, as and so, so tell us about that kind of. You know, when they push money into the system, you know, there's like the money printer go burr meme or whatever. Like, how oh does God. how does the Fed actually um, produce? How do they actually push money into the system and how do they like suck money back from the system? Super fascinating. Great question, by the way. And this gets into my favorite kind of stuff, which is like the mechanics, not the theory, but the mechanics and the plumbing. Um, and yeah, OK, OK. I, I and and but I do want to say this though, like I don't want to just bash and beat up on crypto and Bitcoin because there's a certain like theory that underlies Bitcoin that's important that we're going to get to in terms of like having discipline with creating money. Right. 21, 21 million. There's only going to be twenty one million. There won't be. Uh, you won't have um, a century's worth or three hundred sixty years worth of money printed within uh, three and a half years. You know. Exactly. I just want to make sure we don't like go past that, but. Okay, here's here's how <laughs> here's how money gets made. Okay, <laughs> when the birds and the bees, when a man loves a woman very much, you know, when exactly. the Fed loves the J.P. Morgan a lot, well, what they do is they increment the dollar. <laughs> so true. When when the world's biggest banks get together on Wall Street, yeah. so you might have heard like the Federal Reserve got created at, at a literal secret meeting at a a resort off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island. And these bankers got together and came up with the plan, which was then ratified and passed by the U.S. Senate. But this is really key. They're like, okay, central bank's coming. We got to have it. Got to happen. But we don't want it to displace or totally take over Wall Street. 
So we're going to make sure that the Fed is going to be backstage and Wall Street is on the front stage. So the only way the Fed can create money is by making new dollars appear or disappear. We'll get to that part. But by making new dollars appear inside 24 bank accounts on Wall Street that are owned by these institutions that are called primary dealers. The primary dealers are exactly who you think they are. J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, and then more obscure institutions. But, okay, let me explain it. Like, the Federal Reserve Bank in New York City has a trading desk that looks like a trading floor at J.P. Morgan. It's just a big hallway, you know, it's kind of like this open open barn type room, which is cubicles everywhere, financial traders walking around in their fleeces with their coffee mugs talking with each other. And there's this room in the corner with a, a trading desk where a Fed trader will sit down, call up J.P. Morgan and say, hey, I want to buy $8 billion worth of bonds from you. And J.P. Morgan says, agreed. J.P. Morgan gives those bonds to the Federal Reserve. And then that trader at the Fed desk in New York types into the keyboard and boom, $8 billion appears in J.P. Morgan's bank account to pay for those bonds. That $8 billion was created out of nowhere by the Fed inside a reserve account on Wall Street. That's how money gets created. That's how it happens. And I don't want to like get bogged down, but back in history, the Fed used to just create a little bit at a time and then take away a little bit, like tuning a piano chord in really fine little variations. They'd create a little, take a little away, create a little, take a little away. That ended in 2010 when the era of quantitative easing began, when we just started flooding the system with money. Yeah, I love it. But that. that's how money gets made. Yeah, yeah, and I, that's a great, and I love I love imagining the people in their little uh, Patagonia vest or their, their little fleeces or whatever, and they're kind of there, and they just hit them up, and they sit, and as you, I think it's smart to know, it's like, and I think of it, some like um, things that have helped me as I've gone down this rabbit hole, like, yeah, that the Fed is kind of the banker's bank, you know, and so the Fed, so the bankers have to hold their reserves at um, the Fed, and they have to hold whatever 10%, and so then they say, hey, and, and then, so that's kind of one piece of it, is these reserves, and they, they increment those reserves that the, that the bank has um, with the Fed, and then the other piece that you said that it's just crucial is like there are these bonds and the bonds are kind of these long duration instruments you know that's like a 10-year bond or a, you know a five-year or 20-year bond and what they do is they kind of exchange that long duration instrument for the short-term liquidity of just cash and then that cash goes back out into the world and kind of get, can do its thing so how does how does the vice versa happen how does um the money get sucked back from the system if i'm jp morgan and i have those eight billion dollars and you're the fed and you're like hey can i have them back or how do they get them back <laughs> Yeah. Like in essence, it's just the opposite. The Fed trader calls up JP Morgan and says, hey, can I please sell you a treasury bond? JP Morgan says yes. And the treasury bond goes from the Fed to JP Morgan. And those dollars go from JP Morgan inside the Fed. And at that point, and it gets abstract, of course, because money doesn't exist. <laughs> Money's not real. And the money has now gone from J.P. Morgan to the Fed, and it's inside the Fed. And so to, I say the Fed has like extinguished or destroyed that dollar because it's pulled it out of circulation, it's pulled it out of the banking system, and it's sitting inside the Fed. So really, technically, you know, I mean, the Fed 
it, the, oh man, we're going to get the scale of money creation over the last decade is is like impossible to conceive. Almost, it's gigantic. Um, but the Fed right now could hypothetically suck five trillion dollars in cash out of Wall Street by selling bonds. And I'm going to get a little bit shaky on this. I'm sure there's a lot of technicality behind it, but the reality is, when the Fed buys and sells stuff. It doesn't play by the same rules you or I play by because it literally can make and destroy money. So it can buy a bond essentially for whatever it wants to pay without thinking about it. And it can sell a bond essentially for whatever price it wants to sell it for. So that's why creating and destroying dollars back and forth in this way doesn't obey like market rules. You know, the Fed can do this at will because it creates the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, they they're the only ones who just get to get to increment. You know, most people have to do double entry accounting where they say, "Well, I took out this amount, I increased this amount." And they're just like, "Let it, let it be." And then a bond. The thing that I think is interesting about this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like bonds, whether it's a one year, ten year, thirty year bond, that is just a long duration instrument that at the end you still exchange for cash, right? Or you is that right? Or how does a bond after the end of the thirty years you get you get U.S. dollars for it? What happens at the end of a bond? That's right. And for the purposes of our, our conversations, we're really only talking about two kinds of bonds. And for most of history, we were only talking about one type of bond, which is a United States Treasury bond, U.S. debt. And then the Fed, when they got into this era I write about in the 2010s, which was, let me state clearly, the 2010s were an era of wild and unprecedented experimentation in money printing just like way off the charts. So during that era, the Fed started not only buying treasury bonds, but like mortgage bonds. Okay, let's just put that aside for a second. A treasury bond, like you're saying, is a really interesting thing. The United States government issues a 10-year treasury bond. And let's say for the purposes of this, this doesn't exist, but let's just say it issues the bond for $10,000. Okay. So the Fed, the Treasury gets $10,000 in cash, and then this bond exists. And the U.S. Treasury effectively, and man, bond traders go crazy when you get a tiny detail wrong about yeah, this. So like, yeah. forgive me if I get really slow. Basically, the bond gets paid at the end, the entire amount. It's not like a credit card debt where I pay like 20 bucks a month and I'm paying down the principal. It's like you borrow the $10,000 for 10 years and then at the end, you pay back the $10,000 Got it. in full. Got it. And there are payments along the way and there's like discount to the final price and stuff like that. But basically, and that's how corporate bonds work, by the way. They're not like credit card debt where you pay down the principal, you pay the whole thing at the end. So yeah, cash goes in at the beginning and then at the end, all the cash needs to go to pay off the full thing. Cool, cool. Yeah, got it. Yeah, so you have the $10,000 bond, aka uh, the U.S. Treasury um, gets their $10,000 in cash, and then the bond kind of exists out there, chilling, 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 and then it's waiting, waiting, waiting. And if you're Silicon Valley Bank, you might have uh, 86 you know, or a billion dollars of these bonds. Um, and then the reason, the issue is that you can't uh, convert them into um, cash until after the hold to maturity, you know, the 10-year period at at which point you get to change the liquidity um, into, or you get to you get to access the actual liquidity. So that makes sense. So this, so I think we have a good view. Thank you for co-explaining that. Of like, 
here's how it works. We have the Fed. The Fed is kind of working with these um, central banks, or sorry, the Fed is working with these these commercial banks, um, these 24 of them. It can increment money in their accounts. That's kind of a political um, thing that happened in the early 1900s as a way to make sure that the Fed's in the back and these banks and Wall Street still have power in the system where all the new money that gets that happens kind of goes to them first. It doesn't like go to the people or whatever. Before we get to the the like 2008 and like the last kind of decade, tell us about you know, the the period of your book does a really good job of kind of diving into the the 70s and great inflation and kind of how the Fed was operating before the era of quantitative easing. Tell us a little bit about that that period and how, how that worked. Okay. I'm not going to explicitly tie this to what's happening now, but it is hyper instructive, by yeah. the way. Um, okay. So the Fed's job is to manage the money supply. And I always, I compare it to just these like engineers inside the control room of a nuclear power plant. You want the thing to be running, but you don't want the power plant to overheat or melt down. Okay. So you're going along decade by decade. You, you push more money out in the system when you need to heat up the reactor and you get it humming. But then when it starts getting too hot, you pull money out and cool it down. And you do this back and forth. They really made a huge mistake in the late 1960s. And by the way, this isn't Chris Leonard sitting here. They made a huge mistake. The Federal Reserve's own internal studies, which I cite in the book, which really have the benefit of hindsight. There's this epic study from 2004, which is a study of studies, okay, that says we screwed up in the late 60s. And here's how we, we put too much money out there for too long. The core reactor melted down. Because here's what happened. In the late 60s, the Fed was it was printing more money. And, and the synonymous term for that is keeping interest rates low, keeping money easy and accommodative. And what would happen is they'd keep interest rates low. Let, let, let me pause you for a second. Just for yeah. the listeners, the interest rates low thing is the key idea is there is that if you have – at the Fed, the Fed kind of has a rate um, where they say, hey, if you want to get more reserves here, I'll give them to you at this interest rate. And so if the interest rate is 10%, then you're like, oh, man, in order to get more money, I have to pay 10% later. So like, I need to like, it's going to be hard to get this extra money. But if the interest rates are zero, then it's just like, oh, I can just like suck in free money and then that put use that free money for these other things. And then when I give it back to the Fed, it's kind of there's no there's no cost to pay on it. So that's the, I just wanted to kind of make that that tie for the listener. That's what low interest rates, how they create more money in the system. Yes. A hundred percent. And by the way, zero wasn't ever on the table yeah. until like 2008. <laughs> and, and it's then been Low zero. interest rates here are like 5% or something or something. Exactly, <laughs> dude. They were like 9% in this period I'm talking about. And so low, low interest rates equals more dollars out there in the economy. Higher interest rates is a way of thinking you're sucking those dollars into the Fed, cooling it down. So what would happen is the Fed would lower rates in the late 60s and print money in part, by the way, I like to fund the Vietnam War to, to do all this stuff. And then inflation would start to rise. And, and the best way I've heard it described is you've got too many dollars out there chasing too few goods. Demand is really high. Lots of dollars out there trying to eat everything from you know cars to televisions, hot dogs, gasoline. And so when inflation started to rise, the Fed would try to cool it down. They would try to hike rates, suck that money back in. And it would cool inflation, but then it would start to hurt economic growth and jobs would start to get cut. And 
the Fed is not like politically, I'm sorry, they're not democratically accountable to the people. The people who run the Fed aren't elected. But I read this great history written by this guy, Alan Meltzer. It's this huge, long history of the Fed. And he's like, you know. Was that the one that was 2,100 pages, by the way? Exactly. Oh, my God. And and dude, I can't lie. I did not read the whole thing. Yeah, I was going to say, wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I've read a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. I've read a lot of it. And it's like down to the minute stuff. This guy was obsessed. He was a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. And he wrote a, a like almost like day by day minute of the of the great inflation. And his point was, you know, the people who run the Fed are human beings. They read the newspapers, they they watch TV. When jobs are getting lost, unemployment's rising, the economy's slowing down, the president's talking about it, they react. And it's a subtle thing. You know, this whole idea of like Johnson bringing the Fed president and poking his chest in the White House or like Donald Trump, like beating the heck out of the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, with Twitter, that's such a cartoonish version. This this influence is very subtle and happens subtly. But in the late 60s, the people who ran the Fed were like, oh, my God, unemployment's rising. Cut rates again. Okay, And they would do that. And then inflation would rise. They would hike rates. But then it would get bad and they'd cut rates. It was this back and forth oscillation that was happening that pretty soon just made inflation explode. So that by like the middle 70s, inflation is like double digit growth year over year. And this is the period when we really talk about the great inflation, the, the lines of cars outside the gas stations, people hiking up meat prices in the middle of the day at grocery stores. And this is what's so important. Inflation at that point is like out of control, totally out of control. It's embedded in the economy. People, when there's inflation, they expect more inflation, which, which pushes them to do things that increase inflation. It's a spiral. And, and the spiral happened because the Fed was doing this two-step back and forth of like cutting rates, but then raising them, cutting them, raising them. And they let inflation uh, gather strength and then just combust. Yeah, yeah. So that's how the great inflation happened. Exactly. And I think it, and I think the crucial thing is that, yeah, there's, a, as you said, it's like if you're just out there kind of pumping too much money into the system, and if you're kind of tuned into the um, – uh, what the what the, the the news is saying and being humans tapped into nightly news or tapped into Twitter or whatever it may be, you're gonna be like, oh man, and you know, like uh, unemployment bad. Let's just like make sure that like people don't get unemployed. And so like let's keep pumping money into the system. And then what happens in the end? It's like, oh my God, way too much money in the system, too much money chasing too few goods. So let's kind of, and I think that 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 frame for me was really helpful too in thinking about previous bubbles too, where just like pumping money into the system makes bubbles, you know? And whether it's 2000 with, you know, dot-com bubble, it's like there's easy money and that money is flowing into the tech industry. It's like some of that is truth, which is that there is exciting things and Amazon and Google and all these things are being built. So, so it does make sense that there's some amount of excitement there and some amount of real value at the end. But at the same time, if it's just like, if there's money flowing around, then it's going to kind of create these kind of bubble-like environments. So kind of bring us into... 2009, 2020, you know, the era of quantitative easing, the era of easy money. What's what's uh, going on here and why is it um, so different than the past? Yes. Let me start at 08. And really quick, when I wrote the chapter about the 70s inflation, I called it the great inflation parentheses S, the great inflations, because you just described a really important point. You've got price inflation, which is what we all talk about and think about, gasoline, cars, uh, food, price inflation. 
But then you have inflation in asset prices. And an asset is anything you can buy that holds value. And the most typical kind we think of would be stocks, shares of stock, real estate, corporate bonds. Things like that are assets. When the Fed prints too much money, it can create inflation both in prices and in assets. During the 1990s and the 2000s, the Fed had the easy money policies kind of back and forth, which really accelerated into the 2000s, but like price inflation remained tame, interestingly. And and I kind of go into it, but it's it, it big, big issue there. But let's just suffice it to say, we never really saw price inflation. I think it's fair to say in hindsight, that's lar- in at least in large part because the globalization of the economic system, the trade, the new entrance into the labor force, that was super deflationary, this whole system we built of international trade. We saw asset inflation, though. And, and that's really, let's get to the 2000s. The Fed kept rates low to stimulate the economy, 01, 02, 03, 04, particularly 03, 04. And, you know, as a reporter, I love, everybody loves beating up on greedy bankers and short-sighted, idiotic mortgage loan companies like Countrywide. Like that all was real for sure. But the Fed, by pushing so much money out in the system, by keeping borrowing costs so low, it was feeding that. It was like enabling that, the, the fraud and the greedy bankers. This was all part of the, you know... Uh, dumb mortgages are weather. Fed policy is climate. Like the Fed was creating the climate. And so that played a huge role in the housing bubble, building, 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 and then correcting, crash. And then you had the contagion effect as all the derivatives and stuff like that. Okay. But it was really in responding to the crash of 08 that the Fed steps in and the chairman of the Fed at that time was Ben Bernanke, who'd been the student of the Great Depression, well, a professor who taught about the Great Depression at Stanford. And he's like, okay, the big lesson is they kept money too tight during the Depression. We're never going to get caught doing that. And so they printed a trillion dollars to stop the bank panic or the global financial crisis of 08, which, by the way, was as much money as they'd printed in the first century. So good way to measure this is Fed balance sheet, which goes from 900 billion to north of a trillion in like six months-ish, nine months, maybe a year. Let's just say a year to be safe. That's a doubling of the Fed balance sheet. But then the critically, like my book starts in late 2010, and this is a different moment. The global financial crisis is over We're not heading into a recession in 2010, but growth is weak. And that's when Ben Bernanke says, we're going to try this experiment of money printing called quantitative easing. So we're going to hold interest rates at absolute zero, which per the conversation you and I have had, that's like like pedal to the metal on easy money, 0% interest. And at the same time, we're going to print like a trillion dollars in a year, basically, again, to pump into the banking system. That's the nature of what started to happen in 2010, and that continued through the whole decade. 
Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think I think as you, one of the key learnings for me from from your book was this asset inflation versus price inflation, where it's really important to be to look at oh, stock market go up and you know housing go up. Is that necessarily good, or is that that just too much money t- chasing too few assets? You know, and it's like oh, okay, great this thing is being pumped up by these assets. So that's smart. I think also one of my listeners had a question. Um, I asked them, you know, what they want to ask you. And one of them was about the, um, why we, um, price inflation versus asset inflation, why price inflation didn't happen as much, um, during the two thousands and et cetera. And it sounds like yeah, globalization had intense deflationary effects on the economy. And so it was able to keep kind of prices still low because it was being outsourced and stuff was being produced in these ways. And so it was too much money, but that money, the the, the goods, there were more and more of those goods as well. And so it was just the assets that went up and not the, um, uh, and not the, the goods. So that, that kind of makes some sense to me. Um, and then as you say here, I think that the, it's just, it's a crazy, and I think thinking of the fed and thinking of the U S government, whatever it might be, this like whole system is some kind of weird blood sucking leech, some kind of weird addictive personality where it's like, it's already at 0%. And then your quantitative easing on top of that is like, it's almost, if you were in the 1970 and thought, and you're like, oh my God, you're telling me that the rates are at zero. That's crazy. And then what did you do? You just seriously just like pumped out money and did quantitative easing and bought all these mortgage-backed securities, all this stuff just, and just pumped out. You went from, you know, whatever, 1 trillion to 2 trillion and then up to 4 trillion, 7 trillion. It's like, that is crazy. So yeah, so that is, um, and, and so, so tell us about, I guess, so we, we have this kind of picture of there, there's all this easy money out there now. What impacts did that have on um, the economy and on, on, on people? Uh, oh, my God. I mean, OK. <clears throat> so, like, how do I even start? Um, initially, when I started the book, it was called The Lords of Easy Money, How, the Federal, how Quantitative Easing Changed the World. Because it's like you were talking about, if someone from the 70s was looking at it, they'd be like, oh my God, you quadrupled the money supply in like five years. And and to me as a reporter, per that first interview, I'm like, this is a step change. Like this is a dramatic change in continuity in history. So as a reporter, you're like, I want to write about that. By the time the book is published, the subtitle is how the Federal Reserve broke the American economy. So like what's going on there? What effect did this have on the real world? Not a great effect. And I'll give you just the headline really quick. It dramatically widened the wealth gap between the very richest and everybody else. It dramatically increased risk in the system. It pushed all these banks to to get riskier and riskier and riskier in the things they bought and the things they invested in. And then finally, it it, it enabled an enormous uptick in debt for private people, for households, for governments and corporations, and for the government. In another way, in, in my view, when you look at those risky speculative investments coupled with the enormous upswing in debt, it it made our financial system way more fragile and vulnerable. Just huge. It, it just built such fragility and vulnerability into the financial system. I am telling you, I talk to people on Wall Street all the time. They are not like happy right now. They are not uh, optimistic. They're not sanguine. They're, they're, I met with this private equity dude in commercial real estate who who's they're just sober. They're sober. And it's because they realize what a house of cards this whole thing 
and how far down the drop is going to be if the Fed really does try to tighten conditions as, as the Fed is trying to right now. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I can get granular on the effect really quick if you want. That yeah, that'd like, be great. I was going to say, yeah, tell us a little bit more about, because I think it's interesting to know how it creates the wealth gap and how it creates the, why there's a lot more debt, you know, stuff like that. Totally. And why the investments are so risky. Okay. Exactly. exactly. So for seven years, interest rates are held at zero, which I can't overstate how radically unprecedented that is. They'd never really been at zero before, and then they were there for seven years. Okay, And then the Fed is pumping $3.5 trillion in between 2010 and 2014. So the way I like to look at it is, let's say you run a hedge fund on Wall Street or a private equity firm. I mean, your job is to invest. Interest rates are at zero. The ability for you to like safely save money might as well be nothing. I mean, uh, 10-year treasury bond yields were down at like 2% at times like that. And I like to think of the 10-year treasury bond as like the savings account for Wall Street type people. That's where you can put your money that's totally risk-free. Now, if I can earn 5 or 6% saving my money and you come into my office with an investment idea, it had better earn more than like that 4 or 5%. You really have got to do some convincing to me. Like, hey, look, man, this is my business plan. This is my management team. This is our long term. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull my money out of that 6% savings account and give it to you. If, if the interest rate's at zero and trillions of dollars are now pushed into the Wall Street banking system and you come into my office and you're like, I don't know, I've got this idea probably won't go bust. I'm like, here you go, man. Of course, I'm oversimplifying. But the Wall Street types call this effect the so-called reach for yield. They they needed somewhere to pump, to put all this cash. So they start buying junk bonds, for example, for frackers in North Dakota, who are like wildly overestimating how much oil they're going to drill, who have like ridiculously bad management teams. But Blackstone is like, hey, whatever, man, we'll buy your junk debt. Your your promise of yield is higher than anything we could get saving. So literally hundreds of billions of dollars of cash starts to roll out into the economy. And then in the same environment, you're like, I'll buy Tesla stock for this price that's like insanely high. Like it's basically priced as if every car in the country will be a Tesla by the year like 2040. But OK, I'll buy it. And all these all these markets for assets, corporate junk debt, tech stops, really they they go up. It it builds this huge bubble. And this is an asset inflation bubble that's going on steadily for 10 years. Now, the wealth effect, why did this increase the gap between the rich and everybody else? You know, according to the Fed's own numbers, the richest one percent of people, this like infamous cliche 1% group, you know, who I almost feel sorry for. They get beat up so much, but it's just like, this is our era. But like the 1% own 40% of the assets in the country. 1% of people own 40%. The bottom half of Americans, 50% of us own 5% of the assets. So when you have a policy like quantitative easing that is driving up asset prices dramatically, you're by math, benefiting the 1% way, 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 way more than everybody else. And 
and and just meanwhile, like this kind of activity is speculation, risky investment. Look, wages were flat for a decade. Productivity growth was extremely weak. Overall economic growth was weak. The financial markets were supercharged. But so like this was a decade of like the stock market doubling, the corporate debt market doubling. Everybody else is kind of treading water. And for all this trouble, what you get at the end is a banking system that is like teetering in the sense that it is it is gorged up on so much risk. The asset prices are so inflated that one pinprick can set off a terrible chain reaction. Yeah, I love that. That's it. Yeah, it's like you can kind of imagine it as there's yeah there's all this money that's being pumped into the system all these and it's being pumped in by by sucking out all these assets that were kind of risky oh give us your mortgage backed securities give us your whatever you know we'll give you this liquidity now um and then that money goes out there and it's like okay what should i get now it's like well i i'll, I'll buy that some junk bonds i'll buy, i'll buy some you know some nfts i'll buy some tesla stock and it's all in this asset inflation asset inflation and as you say it just creates this massive um you know uh gap between the rich and the poor there because all this money is being pumped into being pumped into central banks which and pump it into assets and then everybody who has those assets gets money but everybody who doesn't doesn't get that money and so it's kind of like a reverse ubi where you're like only money to the rich <laughs> not money to the you know um to the poor and then and as you say too i think the risk yeah towards riskier investments and then the, the the debt is really intense too because um yeah if you look at corporate debt it's you know it's gone up from roughly a hundred percent to two hundred percent and what what it is is it's it's all these people there's all this easy money and so what they're doing is these stock buybacks and so they're like good we'll just take this free money and we'll the whole ball game to you know for the cnbc traders and for everybody is to increase um equity prices and so we're going to buy spend this we're going to borrow a billion bucks and then buy do a hundred billion dollars of stock buybacks so there were whatever seven trillion dollars of stock buybacks all just making all this money go up go up go up well that's that's debt though that's that's you know they got it was free money but then where does that free money come from and, and so um Okay, so that's kind of the situation we're at. We're at this hyper leverage kind of debt uh, thing with lots of um, wealth inequality as a result. And I guess I have a question for you, which is, can you go in an additional kind of like 10 minutes, by the way, or do you have to- Oh, dude, I'm good. Okay, great, 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 great. I can go as long as you want. Yeah, great, great. Well, we'll go for probably like another maybe 15. Um, So this is, so that's the situation. And I guess- um, let's bring it into the current moment, which is like, how then, how does something like Silicon Valley Bank connect to this and, you know, this overhang of all these, you know, all the, the, um, uh, hold to maturity kind of $620 billion of these long-term. Yeah. So tell us about like the current moment and why, how SVB kind of connects to, if it does connects to this, um, current macro, uh, easy money environment. hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> I'm going to make it real quick. By 2020, before anyone even gets a cough from COVID, we were already so deep in on this like easy money experiment and program. The system was starting to short circuit in 2019. It's really, really, my, my favorite part of the book is from 2018 to 2019. The Fed was trying to raise interest rates again because they knew all the stuff you and I are talking about. They knew it was happening. And they're like, we got to pull back on this. So they started to raise rates. They started to pull some of this money out. And the system short-circuited. Uh, repo bailout, September 29th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me we, about that. Because that was something I've read and I kind of got it, but didn't really get it. So tell us about, yeah, that repo bailout. Dude, I did a whole chapter on it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Let's just put it this way. The Fed was trying to raise interest rates again, they got up to 2.5%, which historically is really, really, really low. 
And then the Fed was trying to pull, they were trying to reverse quantitative easing. But the banks were operating on top of this, like, you know, gigantic pool of money. And the Fed took too much out of the system. And what was supposed to be a very safe, predictable overnight loan market called the repo loan market was uh, the the cost of an overnight loan. And this is the lifeblood of Wall Street, the repo market. Uh, in in mid-September 2019, the cost of this loan goes from 2.5% to 10%. And as a side note for listeners, this is a these loans are kind of like the the bonds into short term liquidity, but it's like a short term thing where it's just like, hey, I just need some short term liquidity. Give me this little loan that I'm gonna be able to pay off some stuff, and then I'll give it back to you in a second. Um, I just need the short term liquidity, but I'll give you the point, you know, the the one percent or the two percent. Is that right? Totally correct. And and the basic thing is like, this is how Wall Street funds itself. Yeah. And to go from two and a half percent to ten percent is like Lehman Brothers collapse numbers. And the Fed was totally caught off guard. I interviewed the people who were in charge, um, John Williams at the New York Fed, Lori Logan, his market woman, uh, the, the woman over the market trading desk. It was a crisis, and they printed $400 billion through quantitative easing to stop that crisis in September 2019. And it was this huge acknowledgement of like, we can't even get rates up to 2.5% and draw you know, bring our balance sheet down to like three and a half trillion without causing major, major problems. It's just like the sign of like, wow, we have really distorted the market and getting back to normal is going to be really, really hard. So that happened. And then let's, that brings us up to like December of 2019, interest rates are at two and a half percent. And the Fed is already like, we can't really totally stop quantitative easing. The way to measure quantitative easing is the size of the Fed's balance sheet, which went from a trillion dollars, remember, to four and a half trillion. They managed to bring it down into the threes. Okay. COVID hits. COVID was a once in a generation, hopefully, uh, you know, crisis that was going to be bad no matter what. But this crisis hit a financial system that was tremendously vulnerable. I mean, just even even at this time, like the really smart people knew we were in for a tough road. The Fed, in response, printed 350 years worth of money in like three months. The balance sheet goes ultimately from three and a half trillion to nine trillion. Okay. Back in the 2000s, everyone was freaking out and having all these debates about the Fed when the balance sheet was four and a half trillion. Today, it's just a little under nine trillion. And the Fed directly started buying corporate junk debt. What I'm saying is they faced a crisis that was exacerbated by the easy money policies, and they just handled it by tripling, quadrupling, quintupling down. Okay. So that brings us to 2021. The balance sheet's like $9 trillion. They've stopped a crisis, and then inflation hits. And am I still good? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a little video lag. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're but, good. You're good. So then in 2021, inflation hits, which is terrible for all of us. And inflation goes to like 9% really, really quickly. And you know, the lesson of the 70s is that when you let this fire burn, it gets out of control really fast. Inflation is gnarly and terrible and destabilizing, and we should all be worried about it. It's not great. 
It's terrible. And this is what's so important to understand now is the Fed had gone so far down this road of easy money with a $9 trillion balance sheet, interest rates at zero again. And then they had to hike rates to stop inflation. And in 2022, they hiked rates. They had gradually kind of done from zero up to one. And then in 2022, last year, they go from one to five, basically, a little under five. That is the fastest rate of change since even before the 60s. Like, even when they had to hike rates to kill the great inflation, the rate of change wasn't this dramatic. I don't call it an interest rate hike. It was an interest rate shock. And it's going to take some time for that interest rate shock to bleed out through the system. And so my whole point as this guy who's written this book and is critical of the Fed, at you know, at the end of last year, I was like, here's the thing, folks. If, if Jay Powell keeps the interest rate at 5% for a year, we're going to see stuff that is ugly. But if he cuts rates, he could be making the mistake that they made back in the 60s of cutting and then raising and then cutting and then we get inflation. So, okay. My take on it is like, dude, we're like three months into 2023. Three months in, Silicon Valley Bank has failed. A mega bank in Credit Suisse has failed. And we're three months into this thing. And Jay Powell is saying, yeah, we, I mean, the whole Fed, uh, the whole FOMC is saying, we're going to keep rates at 5% this whole year. And so we can get into the details of why Silicon Valley Bank imploded. And what was the other, like Signature and First Republic, Domino, Domino, Domino. Credit Suisse is a mega bank, man. And it's done. It's gone. It's owned by UBS at at the mandate of the Swiss government. That's intense. And everybody's kind of acting like, oh, it's like just whatever. So everything's okay. But uh, it's it, it's not. And and we're it's going to take a while for that 5% rate to really bleed through. And as it bleeds through, it will manifest in a downward adjustment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I love that. I think it's a great, I think it's a good, um, and it's like, as you said, well, hey, yeah, learning about that repo thing is interesting because that didn't get any, you know, coverage or whatever. So it's like, oh my God, this like repo rate, you know, for the Wall Street bankers, it was just like a little sub niche for them. That was a big issue. But then, and then, yeah, we just go and we kind of 3X'd it from, you know, roughly 1 trillion to 3 trillion before. And then we 3X again from 3 trillion to 9 trillion now. And so it's like, okay, there's so much money out there. And then you, and then when you hike the rates, you, you know, you kind of have to, you're sucking that money back from the system and you're saying, look, if you want to get, alone, you're not just going to be able to get free money out there anymore. If you want to do this, it's not just free money. And so the uh, the amount of demand decreases and all these things start to decrease. And then for someone like, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, it's like, oh, you have all of these, um, you know, held to maturity, these, you know, 80, there was no, as you said, everybody's searching for yield. There's no yield. They're like, you know, what, we'll just buy these long-term um, treasury bonds, these safe ones, but they're, you know, for 1.5% or whatever. But then once you increase, um, uh, rates, then those bonds decrease in value. You know, they decrease in value a lot. And so you're you're then down, you know, $20 billion or whatever, because you bought the only safe thing remaining, which wasn't even safe. Um, and so um, I'm curious, what do you think about, uh, and by the way, we don't, we, we can go longer than five minutes. We can go up to, you know, you know if we got time. Um, how do you, how do you think, so what should, what should the Fed, I guess I, 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 I do want to get into slightly around, which is one is, you know, what should we do now? So like, what should the Fed do now? Oh my God. Um, and by the way, I will answer that unsatisfactorily, by the way, but like, 
Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank, you explained it perfectly right. The Fed hiked rates and those bonds dropped in value. Here's what I love about this, though. If you hold the bonds forever, you don't have to mark down the loss of value. And uh, it's called an unrealized loss. When you look at the banking system right now, the unrealized losses of these treasury bills is $600 billion. Okay, that's true. What's messed up, though, you don't have to mark that loss down, basically, if you're a big bank until you sell some of the bonds. And then you have to mark the loss down. So if you can hold off and not sell any, you don't have to realize the loss. If you're Silicon Valley Bank and people are starting to pull money out and you need to raise capital, you got to sell the bonds. You got to accept the loss. The loss becomes public. And then Janet Yellen is like bailing you out over the weekend. So and that's, by the way, the, the B, BF, BTFP, which is this, everything's a facility, you know, the bank term funding program, you know, and that, that facility, it, all these things are maturity transformations. What that allows you to do is it takes any of these uh, long-term bonds, this 10-year thing, and you get to put it into this little bucket, and then the Fed gives you money right now in return. And so that's kind of how you, that's how the Fed has kind of helped these um, uh, banks that have the 600 trillion, 620, sorry, billion dollars of, of, of um, unrealized losses, you can get those at par, you put them into a little facility and you can get money today. You know, it's like a new form of quantitative easing, you know. <laughs> but if you call it quantitative easing, they'll lose their minds. Exactly. And you exactly. don't understand the facility. Exactly. And exactly. Okay. I mean, it's the same thing. They will create another facility to pump money in to pick up the loss from the distortion that they've created. Okay, but like that's a really hard question. It's, it's throwing it back at me. Like, yeah, what, what, what should the Fed do? Yeah. What are they supposed to do? Um, first of all, inflation is scary. Like it's not to be played around with. There are these, I, I've read a couple great books about the hyperinflation of Weimar Germany, which I know is not really applicable. There's so many huge differences, but look at right now today, Beirut, Lebanon, Nigeria, Lagos, Nigeria, uh, Turkey, they're all having massive currency crises. And, and it's ugly. It's destabilizing. Um, so the Fed needs to take inflation seriously. But the best thing that could ever happen to us is if inflation just mysteriously declines rapidly down to like 2%. It's at about 6% now. The Fed does not foresee this happening. But if it does... It would just be such a miracle. It would be so great because then we wouldn't have to face these trade-offs of keeping rates elevated to kill this inflation and accepting the carnage that happens. Um, what should they do now? Can you tell I'm trying to like avoid this? I mean, because they've got to fight inflation, but that's going to require accepting a great deal of like economic pain. I think that they should stop prioritizing the well, and this is going to sound like such a cliche, but stop prioritizing the well-being of the too big to fail banks and the too big to fail shadow banks like Blackstone and the richest Americans who have the best phone line into the Fed and, and, and Congress. Those folks have gotten bailed out like to the 100 cents on the dollar pretty much every single event since 2000. 
And all that's doing is perpetuating the problems and reducing Americans' faith in the system more and more each time. But I mean, yeah, I, I don't know, man. This feels really easy and glib for me to say instead. If, if I was like sitting on the Fed committee right now and they're like, what are you going to do? Um, I, I, I'll just be totally blunt with you. We are in a terrible situation and I don't really have the answer. I mean, fight the inflation, try to contain the damage to the degree you can and stop putting the richest and the biggest banks ahead of everybody else. I think that's actually, I think it's a good, and I kind of come to a similar conclusion, which is that it's hard, but I think you kind of have to keep rates. What you want to do is you got to suck money out of the system. You know, there's just way, way, way too much money in the system. And so it's like, and so this is, I see it as kind of like a, a five year decade long program where it's like, yeah, you have to keep rates at, at that 5% or whatever it might be for an extended period of time. You want to get people back to a normal reality as it happens, as you say, I think, and you're essentially choosing of it's like a poison or whatever, like a between a rock and a hard place where it's like, you have to choose that. And what you have to do, and you do a great job of this in the book, or like in the seventies or sorry, in the eighties, the seventies and eighties, as people were like, Oh, we need to actually hike rates a bunch. Um, the role of the FDIC and of Thomas and these people in your book, what they had to do is they had to do this mop them up operation where they're like, okay, you're coming to us, you're requesting um, some money, some kind of facility for now. Do we actually think that that is, and, and you have to take this equity lens where you're like, let's not just help the rich, but let's, let's try to help everybody. And as, and it's going to be, you know, whatever, 1600 banks um, failed between 1980 and 1994. Um, and so it's just like, I feel like that's part of the ball game right now. It's like, that's what needs to happen as a way to kind of get out of the age of easy money and back into something that has some connection to reality. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I land. And, and let me follow up on yeah. that. You know, who we're not talking about is Congress. And the White House. But a biggest part of what I talk about is how much power the Fed has taken onto itself. But like the dysfunction of Congress, uh, that's like a luxury they have thanks to the Fed. And so these problems we're going to face, I don't care whether you're super conservative or super liberal, whether you think the answer is to like abolish all regulation and taxes versus have another new deal and build more dams or whatever. Congress has got to step in and legislate to contain the damage to rebuild as what they didn't do after 2008 to a significant degree we let the fed try to print money to get us out of the jam but you know by the way after the great depression the the first thing fdr did was take over the banks and nationalize the toxic banks and then you know they imposed strict antitrust laws that broke up banks they created the fdic We've got to have an absolutely similar regime. I mean, we got we got to get into it to take on the the powerful vested interests, which I know sounds like such a cliche, but like the really powerful people with money who run Wall Street. Like this thing's got to get taken on. And yeah. so, yeah, fiscal democratic authorities have got to step in and start doing their job. And that was for me a big learning about Oh, diving into this is the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Monetary policy is just changing the interest rates, doing more of you know printing more or less money. And fiscal policy is like the the um, is like the New Deal or the IRA or these things where you're like where Congress passes a thing and 
pushes it towards actual infrastructure that we want as a society. Um, and as you say, and I have a, a piece actually that I'm writing right now called uh, Vtocracy Made the Money Printer Go Burr, um, the housing theory of everything in the age of easy money, which is exactly what you're saying, which is that we have this Vtocracy. And then because in 2001 and 2008, we're like, can we do anything? And then Congress is like, no, we kind of don't forget. We just we're a totally dysfunctional body. Then you say, OK, I guess the only hammer left in town is the Fed. So the Fed just has to print stuff. Um, and so we don't we're bad at um, and this is the housing theory of everything, too, uh, which is that there's a because we have a vetocracy of housing, no, housing doesn't get built. And so we have um, the two parts of, of money too too much money chasing too few goods. Well, we have too few goods. To, there's not there's too much vetocracy. So there's no housing. Um, and then we also have too much money because the only thing we can't do normal fiscal policy and, and create infrastructure. We can only do monetary policy and just and just like nail that hammer more and more. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, we're in a bad, a bad place. So I have, I have a question for you, which is, do you think what should an individual do here? What this again, a question from a, a listener. And also I was like telling my dad, I was like, hey, dad, just to let you know, like um, the, the, the system's not in a great space right now, but I didn't have any recommendations for him. Like, should people should you what should you get exposure to? Should you get into cash out of cash? Should I just buy gold and put it under my bed? What should I do? You know? Oh my gosh. Not financial advice, obviously, for anyone who's listening, just brainstorming. Yeah, and but I get that all the time. And like grain of salt. If there's and this isn't helpful, but like if there's one thing I've learned from covering these people, we are the last people to know what's going on. We're like three rings out from the poker table. And if, if you think you're gonna like out time Wall Street or or it's just not feasible. I'm conservative. I work hard. I try to save as much money as I can. I've got a 401k and I don't try to mess around and time the market. And when a real storm comes, so to speak, I would be very hesitant to put my money into gold because like everybody who knows what's going on has thought about this like five steps ahead of us. So again, unfortunately, I think it's like, um, a conservative approach to like, don't try to time the market, put as much money as a way you can work hard and, and make yourself as productive as possible. But then from a public policy standpoint, we've got to address these issues, uh, break up the big banks, get Wall Street back on its leash, uh, do policies that empower wage earners in this country um, who are trying to do it themselves through unions or all the rest of it. But these are like uh, policy prescriptions that you and I, you know, individuals, I think all we can really do. And it's tough because we've lost a lot of political power in this era because everybody's so like atomized, you know, like individualized. But uh, this is a big program of trying to, you know, push American politics back away from vested interests and special interests toward the middle class again, which will be a long struggle. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as, as you say, it's kind of for an individual on one side, it's kind of you know, you can just do what you can, which is, yeah, you you know, we're many seats out from the actual poker table. They're thinking about this as their daytime job. And so like, we can just keep doing, you know, what we've been told or whatever. And, you know, it's, um, it's funny too, because as you talked about, it's like getting, you know, kind of breaking up the big banks and getting kind of you know, like strong, you know, this, this idea of um strong state libertarianism, where it's like, let's have the strong state again, you know, it's like actually markets and state work together. And, and there's this great piece in the um, age of easy money, which is a PBS uh, documentary that you were also in. Um, and, and they have this clip of this amazing guy um, who's a um, uh, one of these, like, uh, you know, like a famous bond trader, equity trader, or whatever. And he says,
says, um, you know, it, the, the crazy thing, talking about uh, taking down the banks or whatever, he's like, um, and the percentage of GDP that has gone to finance has gone in the last, you know, you know, 30 or 50 years from 3.5% to 8.5%. We're like a giant bloodsucker, but we do not generate any real increase in income. We are just a cost, you know? It's like, like that's what we have right now is a hyper-financialized system that needs to get unfinancialized and um, who knows how that's going to happen. So, so I have a question for you too, which is kind of taking a step back and maybe this is like the, maybe my final kind of, series of questions for for myself and the listeners is like there are um so in in my world there's kind of two two things that are happening i'll I'll talk about one of them first and then we'll talk about the other one later the first is there's this guy abology srinivasian um who has this bitcoin have you heard about the bitcoin bet the million dollar bitcoin bet I, I saw. I don't understand it. Yeah, totally. It's the the rough deal is that Balaji, who is a very sharp guy, but kind of you know hyper libertarian, kind of crypto energy, and and I personally have some crypto energy too. But like, so he's he's there and he's saying, look, um, what you can. He's mostly he's being kind of extreme about, it and he's saying, hey, there's going to be hyperinflation, and so everybody should put their money into Bitcoin, um, because that's kind of uh, uh, because hyperinflation is coming, and and there's too much money in the system, and as the debt. Um, grows and we're going to have to monetize it by printing more money or whatever. Um, and so I think, but I think what he's pointing at, he's kind of an extreme version of it, but I think the bell that he's ringing is this really good bell about, there's this great Ray Dalio um, uh, YouTube video and also book called Structures of um, Economic Order or something like that. And it is, it's kind of about the rise and fall of empires. And you can look at these empires where at the beginning, they kind of are really good at education. Then they start to create things, do innovation, do all these other things, healthcare, whatever. And then they eventually become the world's reserve currency. And then eventually, and this happened to Netherlands before us, this happened to the, the British pound. And this is maybe now happening to the US. It's like the US has done all this stuff. We are the world's reserve currency. But then at the end, because we're the world's reserve currency, we're essentially pumping out people want our money. And so we kind of um, give people these bonds and then take their US, you know, or we give out the, the US dollars and then we take these bonds. We're sort of just getting more and more debt as 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 a, as a nation. Um, and then eventually what's going to happen is with all of that debt, um, without as much production on the back end to eventually pay off that debt, um, that our reserve currency status will be kind of given to China in the end, which is, I think, inevitable. But so I guess I'm curious for for you, like, you know, that, that kind of big picture story about U.S. and kind of how we are, um, uh, you know, a world power and how we have the world's reserve currency. Is that is this whole money printing regime kind of like a canary in the coal mine for this bigger kind of shift away from the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency? Do you have any thoughts on that? This is something I think about all the time. Um, it's all tied together. I mean, yeah. the, the United States uh, empire is a word we're really hesitant to use because of our anti-imperial past. And our empire today is is a very fascinating kind of like neo-empire uh, hegemony with the reserve currency. So where are we as a nation? I mean, geez, there's a whole cottage industry to like the collapse of the American system theory and all that. What we can say for sure is that this is all intertwined. I have no confidence to be able to say that like we are entering the end stage. And this really is, you hear a lot of people say that this is like, this is totally symptomatic of debauching the currency empire rotting from the inside out, unsustainable levels of debt. Um, Very sound arguments, to be honest. 
but also the world is really um, unpredictable, unexpected. America has a lot of intrinsic strengths that don't get recognized uh, enough. Um, other nations that would compete with us are somewhat disastrous. I mean, China, very interesting setup. Okay. But China is also, have you heard of this um, economic analyst at Credit Suisse named Zoltan Posar? No. Dude is brilliant. Dude is brilliant. He predicted that repo crisis you and I are talking about. He's like the only guy on Wall Street who did. He's been writing almost primarily for about a year about China sort of patiently and consistently building an alternative to our reserve currency by pricing commodities in Yuan and Saudi Arabia. Look, it's not going to happen overnight. It is happening right now today along the margins. And all I do know is that if we do not maintain our status as the reserve currency, it's going to change everything we know about like our system. It'll be totally different. Our currency will be the subject of harsh market discipline in the same way uh, currency is in those nations I mentioned, like Lebanon, Turkey. I mean, it's gnarly. And we're not going to have this incredible privilege of being able to issue debt. And then when there's a financial crisis, people want our debt more. And <laughs> like, it gets easier to borrow. And so if I could like talk, I mean, this, I think about this a lot, man. Look at our um, 20 year occupation of Afghanistan as well. And some of the policies going on there that really didn't end well. Restraint. Restraint. That's what the Fed did not display in the 2010s. Uh, it did not stay inside its lanes and, and try to do moderate economic, I'm sorry, moderate monetary policy that would have like less intense side effects. If they had shown more restraint back then, we'd be better off now. And so when you look at where we are today in the global currency markets, I keep saying like there's a red line where people will lose faith in our currency and we won't be the reserve currency. We don't know where that red line is could be five years, 10 years, 20, 50, 100 years away, but we like seem determined to find that red line. You know, it's like, let's just do whatever we can, borrow as much as possible, fund as much of our budget through deficits, punish everybody through sanctions that are only doable because we are the reserve currency. And it's like, we can't act without restraint like this anymore. We need to like steward our resources better. That's my take on it. Like, I have no idea if this is the end of the American empire, you know, all I know is like, we're not invulnerable. No nation ever has been. And so we need to really be adult and think about this stuff. Yeah. I love that. I think it's, again, yeah, I think yeah, being an adult is a good, a good way to think about it and like being in restraint. And I think that, as you said there, it's a, who knows what's going to happen and what the timeline is. And, and I think that, um, you know, but, but it is this kind of crazy situation that we're in that like, if you think about the shocks of, um, the shocks that Turkey and Nigeria are experiencing now are similar to the Arab Spring kind of food price shocks after 2008, where it was like 2008, and then we kind of printed, and it's hard to kind of connect these dots, but there's something about us printing more money, we get the more money, the people who held our money, they don't get the printing, you know, they just get a decreased, um, all their the stuff that they had, that just decreases, and before, and they're looking around, they're like, wait a second, we're experiencing lots of inflation, our food is costing more, whatever, and then the Americans over there are just kind of continuing to, to eat Burger King. And, and so it's like 
we we are kind of pushing out that kind of disorder onto the system right now and eventually when we're not the reserve currency it will be impacted on us so yeah i, I agree with that um let's go to another kind of big picture one is the final question here which is you know uh, this other guy david friedberg is a, a good guy who thinks about like um kind of in a systemic way about these kind of the, the system as a whole and and how money's flowing and all that kind of stuff and and what he was saying he's just like look we have a system that is this is kind of like a capitalist post-capitalist question almost which is like we have a system that's built on debt everybody the government issues debt um companies issue debt everybody issues debt and then and and they're kind of Everybody's searching for for uh, there's all these loans, these bars, these sellers, and you're trying to build things so that there can be growth. Because only if there's growth, then can the debt be repaid. Because um, at the end, it's like okay, I I had this uh, loan for five percent. I went out there, I made more than that, and now I can give you back the thing. And so, I guess is there any kind of um, you know, philosophical take on like capitalism being built on growth, which is being built on debt, and we have this system full of debt, and is there is there another way to kind of uh, square that circle that's like a way – and what, what David was saying too, David Friedberg, he was like, because we're so built on on debt and then – but when the system – and I'm built on growth, but when there's something like COVID, which is a deflationary event, it's like can't the system can't – it can't think in ways that aren't growthy. You know, if it's like no growth, well, that's not how capitalism works, you know, and so it's hard for us to have this retractionary period when the whole mindset and system and instruments are all built around growth. So do you have any kind of final thoughts on that? Dude, I'm just a reporter, man. <laughs> like, I can tell you what Bernanke said during the meeting in 2012. Like, that's my job. Great, but, great. What do you say? What do you, or, what, or what do you think? What do you think? <laughs> no, no, no. Not even on this topic, but like, um, Okay. It's out of whack. Okay, this is going to sound really like I, I'm not a philosopher. It's out of whack. What I've been talking about with these monetary experiments has pushed the system way out of alignment. And part of that, you have to go back to even before the financial crisis itself, when you had banks that were too big to fail, that were allowed to merge, that were allowed to speculate while they also enjoyed public insurance through the FDIC, like that whole thing is a mess. And, and where we find ourselves now is that this isn't just a capitalist system that uh, increases productivity and output in the old school way to pay down debt and uses debt as a mechanism to feed that system. We're now like debt is the fuel. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about broken the the U.S. economy. We have pushed way, 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 way over here to this side of the spectrum where um, they talk. I mean, the people who ran this policy talk about it. How you talked about it. You're pushing money into the system. People are just using it to borrow and buy back their own stock because that's more profitable than actually like building a research lab in suburban Decatur and trying to find new products that you will sell to people. Well, why would I do that when I can borrow money at 0% essentially, buy back my own stock, and because equities are going up, my, that will you know I'll make money that way. Um, so now we've got a system that isn't just like built on debt, but it's taken over by debt. Like, like this fungus has just grown and grown and grown. So I, I'm a, I'm, I feel like we got the formula pretty correct 
after the Great Depression, when we did the New Deal, which was mixed capitalism, we we stoked research, we we built huge companies, we produced things and sold them. And I know we had this position of like the only surviving industrial base in in the world, but also like our economy is structured in a way that when the money came in, like the middle class kept it a lot because they had power and bargaining power. Uh, the banks were kept on a leash. What that guy was talking about in the, the in the um, special age of easy money of going from three and a half to eight and a half percent, like that wasn't happening. And so I'm an advocate, I suppose. Like I really do think my core job in life is to be a reporter. That's what I'm good at is like, finding out what happened and writing it up and giving it to you. I'm not a policy guy, but like we seem to have gotten it pretty well. Um, we had a good formula with the new deal and it, it's not revolution. We didn't become a socialist nation, but we also didn't, you know, become a hardcore laissez-faire libertarian with zero government. It was a mixed economy. And I, I don't know, man, that kind of like unhappy compromise seems like probably a good direction for us to look toward. Yep, yep, I love that. Yeah, that uh, imagining a future where debt is used to fuel capitalism, but not infinity debt, not a fungus around everything, and that yeah, but we have this strong state libertarianism, some kind of New Deal kind of energy where you yeah, the there's actual fiscal policy happening that pumps infrastructure, that helps education, that helps roads, that helps you know transportation, and then that eventually comes back around and helps you know creates the GPS and the internet and all these things that then help the the rest of the world. So that is hopefully what we're going to get back to. Um, let me ask uh, the, a little two little overrated underrated, which are I'm going to say an overrated. Uh, I'm going to say a thing, and you'll give me like a one sentence version of for why it's overrated or underrated. Um, and so the SVB collapse, do you think that was overrated or underrated? Underrated in its significance. I just went on a show on Yahoo Finance and there was a very uh, sanguine attitude toward the SVB thing. Like, okay, they took care of it. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, no, uh, highly underrated. Cool. Okay. Cool. Great. Um, and then what do you think about there's 2001, there's 2008, there's like dot com, then there's like Great Recession, and then there's kind of COVID. So um, which, you know, kind of compare uh, is 2001 the impact of that, that kind of crash overrated and underrated? Is 2008 kind of overrated or underrated? And is 2020 kind of overrated or underrated? Man, I would say 01, 08. A properly rated. Like we understand, particularly with 08, that it was a epical crisis. Underrated how much, how little we did to actually like address the problem in the financial system. I think COVID underrated. Dude, we had a financial crisis in March 2020 that was worse than 08. The treasury market froze up. The deepest, most liquid, safest market on earth froze up. As the Financial Times said, that was not supposed to be possible. And the Fed only fixed it by printing north of $4 trillion. So underrated and obscured by the money printing. Level of danger today, totally underrated. And again, man, I just got to say, like, I'm not like this natural Cassandra. Like, my life is not like I'm a short seller. I'm not like Nouriel Rabini or whatever. <laughs> but I am just telling you, like, 5% interest rates 
is a five alarm fire, dude. We haven't lived in that environment since 07. Yep. So SVB underrated. I'll get, I'll circle back to that one. Big time. Yep. I love that. And I think it's a, it's kind of like a thing where you can kind of imagine it. Um, a, yeah, it's not like you're pointing at every little thing. You're like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's like, no, you investigative journalist on the things that sound crazy and intense. And then if they end up being boom, here's who here's what you write about. And I think the other piece here is you can imagine kind of like how we did the, like, if someone from the seventies was here today, they'd be like, Oh my God, that's crazy. And hopefully it's the case that someone in 2070, when they look back on us and they're like, Oh my God, can you believe we were just printing money into the system and 0% interest? It's like, that is hopefully what we're going to look up at this time as is like, wow, that was the mistakes that were made in the sixties, AKA the mistakes that were made from 2008 to 200, you know, so like, we'll kind of look at those as kind of mistakes that were made. Um, well, beautiful. Well, thank you, Chris, for going deep on all this stuff. If uh, listeners want to check out Chris on Twitter, he is C Leonard, that's C and then L E O N A R D, his last name, Chris C Leonard News. Um, and then also check out the book. It's called The Lords of Easy Money. It was a good kind of deep dive into um, the deep dive, but also an easy read about like what was happening within these systems and also the people, the kind of the people side, which we didn't touch on too much today is like, you know, who are these people who are on, at the Fed, at, um, at FDIC, and how did they kind of connect to these various different crises over time? Um, so definitely check that out. And Chris, anything else to say to our listeners? No, but thank you for the great conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, I guess, like, buckle up. Like, let's get through this. It's going to be a gnarly couple of years. But if we understand what's happening, I think it will help decision makers a yep. lot better. Hopefully. I love that. Buckle up. It just do do the good work you can as the craziness occurs. And then just keep on, keep on trucking and we will get through it. Um, beautiful. Know. Thank you so much. And goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Landmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thanks, and see you here for the next episode. Bye.